0: tap in time a Chapman stick podcast whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious if it's stick talk you're looking for this is the place so come along and stay a while
1: Hello out there and welcome once again to the tap in time podcast. This is episode number 34 and Claire and I have a couple of guests with us that we're going to get into talking about some of the seminars that have gone on this past summer. So sit back and enjoy the ride.
0: Hi folks, today we're happy to have Glenn Porman and Jim Meyer back with us. Both have been on previously, so check out their previous episodes. Today we're, we're trying to do a bit of a wrap up with them. They, they've both recently had stick events at Interlochen and uh, Gabriola Island. I was say Gabriola. I guess it's Gabriola near Vancouver. So yeah, Jim, Glenn, I don't know who wants to kick off. Tell us kind of how things went.
2: We're all shrugging at each other. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) So Glenn,
0: do you want to, do you want to start and tell us how things went at Interlock and it was, it was the earlier event.
2: Yeah. Well, things went great. They, they usually always do. I think I've I've said a few times and I know I've said this to Jim a few times, you know, we've both done these sorts of events for so long that every once in a while I start to wonder, you know, "Ah, how many of these do I have left? And then, then we actually have an event and by the time. The event is finishing. I'm like so jazzed up, and I'm already starting to plan for the next one. So, you know, I guess the answer to the earlier question of how many of these do I have left? I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A few, a few
2: more. Yeah, you know, at least least one more at this point, you know, and then probably another (laughs) after that, and another after that, and so. But yeah, no, it it went it went really well. They always do interlock and takes good care of us. And uh,
0: all right. (laughs) I, I will point out that uh, us time, Tap in Time hosts, I'll say, did attend various events. I went to the Interlochen one, and uh, Victor and Gene went to the Vancouver one. Had lots of fun. Always nice to meet new folks. Jim, any, any quick wrap-up on, on...
3: Well, you know, it is
0: funny. Whenever
3: Glenn and I talk, we really do have such similar experiences. And what I was thinking is this: there's a stress crescendo... Leading up to the, the <laughs> seminar, and it usually peaks generally for me, like the day before people get here or the morning that people start to arrive. And then it just smooths out. And I, I, people that have heard me talk about this before, you know, the greatest thing about going to Gabriola is the ferry ride from Vancouver is like an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. And by the time we get off the first ferry, I personally am just totally relaxed. So that's what it takes is like that. that is decompression heading out to the island. But, yeah, it's there's more time and effort behind the scenes to make this actually happen. And people think it's just booking the venue. But, you know, a lot of it is it's a diverse crowd. Everybody's travel plans are different. Everybody, what they want to get out is different. And the the amount of email that I get from like July 1st until the day of this, it just really maxes out. But, you know, now I know so many of the people and even the new people, they're just, it's always been a great group. And I'm sure it's the same for Glenn. If these were duds from my perspective, I would have given up a long time ago or (laughs) people don't get along or, you know, whatever. And that's just never the case. It, it, and this year for me was a perfect example. You get a bunch of stick players together, especially where they're away from everything else, like interlocking is perfect for that. Gabriel is perfect for that. Man, I don't know how you can not have a great time. And especially now that at our seminar, it's not so scheduled by the clock. We just sort of decided to change that. So if it's, you know, if we just had lunch together and you've been sitting at the lunch table looking out the window at the beach and you think, you know, I want to go for a stroll on the beach. Yeah, nobody's going to stop you. You're not going to miss some crucial thing that's happening. So I think the, the atmosphere. Nobody's going to notice that you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true, too. <laughs> So I, I, I kind of like that. And, you know, I've, I've been to Glenn's, well, pre interlocking as well, but the Interlocking events uh, more than once. And it's the same thing. You know, you're off somewhere semi-remote with a group of people that just want to play music and talk about playing music. And it's, it's always the funnest week of the year for me. It's yeah, nice they do. They out. do.
2: And, and somehow, somehow, you know, like Jim said, you know, the stress level goes up. But once the event actually starts... I feel like everybody else kind of takes over at that point. You know, the, the teachers that we have, I've never had a dud teacher that came out. You know, the teachers are always really experienced at, at handling these sorts of things. And the people that come out, like Jim said, they just want to play. And I feel like once the event actually starts, they kind of take over and it develops a life for its own. And I just kind of watch it happen. You know, I feel responsible for setting it in motion, but once it actually gets into motion, you know, I just kind of like stand back and watch it go. And, and it's always really cool. And just, I guess
3: I have to ask Glenn, because Glenn was so gracious to come to Gabriola this year. I know when I go to and. Oh my gosh, I just sit there and watch Glenn work all day long and say, oh, Glenn, Glad I'm not doing that. I'm so curious what Glenn's impression is out here. I, I think I did see Glenn in our big uh, performance room with his feet up more than once. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely there, is, uh, definitely, there is an advantage to taking part in these events and not being in charge, which is something that I don't get to do very often. And it's great. <laughs> I'll tell you that much right now. It is great. I mean, I like both it. And I know you had some extra, you had some extra, you know, stress this year that I won't go into, but that, you know, I was chatting with you about some of the, the lead up to this, I was just like, going, yeah, especially I'm glad I'm not in charge, but, uh, you know, but no, it's very different. For both of us. I'm sure it's taught us to roll with the
3: punches because, you you know, when there's enough people involved, you never know what's going to happen. And for us this year, we had a day of cancellation due to COVID. Mm. We had a a physical injury when we were on the island that was, you know, actually two trips to the hospital. We had, I think, three people that for various reasons had to go home early. And, you know, it's, you just let go of that because that's the life part of stuff. And that's, I would say there were more – there was more of that this year than literally any seminar in the past. But, you know, I, I think it's because there was more people. Oh, actually, I wanted to throw that out this year. What I truly loved about Gabriola this year and, – and this is a little bit true of some of the past ones, but this was the best example. There were – when the dust settled and we actually got to the island, there were 18 stick players, but there were 30 people. <laughs> so a huge number of folks – Brought their spouse along. I kind of set up a deal where you could bring your spouse without really costing anything other than food. And people took advantage of that. Uh, Bob Culbertson originally was going to bring his wife and son, which he had done back in 2011. And uh, one of the local players, Alan, brought his family. So there were kids. There were spouses. It was a really much more – it felt more family-like. Though It always feels family-like, but maybe extended family and that was great because then we have an audience at the performances. And <laughs> yeah. also
1: after a fashion, you know, um, the meals together, uh, got a little bit more interesting because, you know, there were a third of the people there weren't stick players yeah. and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with having lunch with a bunch of stick players, but, uh, nothing at all. But, uh,
2: well, you learn you learn about people too at those at things like the meals. I remember in the in the very early days. Well, I was going to say in the early days of Ann Arbor, but not even the early days when we did these events in Ann Arbor. And I don't I don't know if this was true in downtown Vancouver, but when we did these events in Ann Arbor, the only thing that we really planned for was the activities up until the point where the the classes ended, and after that, you were on your own. You know, people had hotel rooms, people went out to restaurants, they roamed around Ann Arbor. If some of the participants got together for dinner, that was fine, but nobody planned on that. I went home and didn't come back till the next morning. So it's a whole different vibe when it's the kind of event where everybody's together pretty much 24-7. You know, so you're taking in meals together, you're having dinner together, you're hanging out at night, having beers together, things like that.
3: And I think what you were alluding to a little bit there is... You also have time to learn the non stick aspects of people's lives. Yes. And I, I think that I'm paraphrasing Greg, but uh, correct me if that's not if that's No, I know almost, what you're going to say. And yeah, yes, you Greg are. Greg <laughs> said, you know, when you hang around stick players, you find out that the least interesting thing about them is that they play the stick. And that, you know, I mean, mm. that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it, mainly it's true. And you know, talk to the, the people who are kind of part-time players. It's fascinating what they do the rest of their time, and how diverse the crew is. And yeah, you know, that's it's it's a nice aspect. That you're right. When you do the the city events, yeah, you don't spend the whole time together. You don't get to share meals meal time together, and that that's you know, it's hard to quantify that. But I think it's a really big part of the well, the retreat style
2: events. Yeah.
1: Hey Glenn, what was the attendance this year at Interlochen?
2: Oh, I think we had around 15, 14, something like that. Okay, so, which is not which is not bad. That's pretty good. We've done much worse, but uh last time we had like 7 or something. We had a few cancellations at the last minute and that was a that was an event that they probably lost money on, but um that was the first post-COVID event, but If you know, usually if we do around fifteen or sixteen, something like that, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, We had the 2019 event, I think, where we had 33, which was insane. Wow! We've we've had that happen twice: once in Ann Arbor and once at Interlock, and that's very rare. But occasionally, the planets align and a whole bunch of people. Thirty people. Wow! Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, Emmett was supposed to come to that one. I think that was part of the reason that we had so many signups, and he had to cancel. Um, very late, and I let everybody know and gave them the opportunity to to cancel out because Emmett was co- wasn't was coming, and nobody did, which was great. And uh, Bob was in Ann Arbor playing at the art fair the week right after, and he was not supposed to teach that year, but he was coming to Michigan anyways. And uh, I said, man, I wonder if Bob got his, I think it was Greg, I said, I wonder if Bob got his plane ticket yet. And Greg said, how long until the event? And I said, oh, only about a month. He goes, Bob, he didn't. He didn't get his plane ticket. <laughs> I called Bob. and Said, "Can you come a week early?" And Bob said, "Sure, absolutely." And Bob came came in and, and filled in for Emmett. So we were supposed to have three people: Greg and Steve and Emmett. And when Emmett couldn't come, um, Bob jumped right in and, sl- and slipped in there, and, and nobody canceled. I was really blown away.
3: You know that that tangentially touches on a huge thing for me about the seminars. Every one that I've done, and I guess it's twenty two now. The instructors are unbelievable, not just in their musical knowledge and the ability to play in a jaw dropping way, but in their total dedication to oh, we yeah. want to help people play. And, I, you know, for me, Greg is certainly the, the most important that because he was the guy that the first seminars I went to and the first seminars that I hosted, he was like the main guy. But it, with Greg, it was always OK, you know, make the event happen Uh, Pay all your expenses and whatever is left over, we'll just kind of deal with it. Name any other event where the main person says anything remotely close to that. And, you know, over the years, all the guys that have come up here, yes, everybody wants to get paid for their time, but it's so clear that that is not the number one priority by a long shot. And it just makes dealing with it all so much more fun you know that's just not an issue okay we're going to do the event we're going to make sure everybody has a good time and that's really the goal so i really appreciate all
2: the instructors that have come here with that mentality yeah absolutely wow and they're good at you know we and we said earlier on that the you know the name would probably come up several times and 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 it will um greg has always been so helpful with just sort of the logistics I mean he helped me as much with organizing. I mean, he basically taught me how to organize stick seminars. know. And even up until the last one that he did here, I was always getting new ideas and, and, and getting help with logistics from him. Um, so cheers. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I think on Gabriola we were, you know, reminiscing as we we're prone to do. And um uh Glenn came up in 2003, when we all went to Salt Spring Island, it was the first retreat that I had done, and great. I remember. I still have. I have photos and video from that, and every now and then I look up at them because it, it's phenomenal phenomenally did. I at the time, I my contribution was zero because I just wasn't really able to do any of that. So, Greg, we get to this place where we all stayed. We weren't the biggest crew. I think there was 13 of us that year, but we all stayed in the same. It was actually two women that ran this place. We stayed in their home and we ate meals together. They cooked every meal for us. But Greg decided that we were going to do a performance on the Sunday evening. So we arrive on Thursday and it's basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we hadn't really decided. We I had Greg booked in a couple of clubs on the Friday and Saturday night, but I didn't have anything for Sunday. It's like, well, we, sh- we, the stick seminar people, should do a performance. So Greg sets up the room, decides where everybody's going to be, sets up the chairs, sets up the sound system. Over the course of the weekend, composes with us what ended up being – of the performance was music that was composed on the spot. And, you know, some of it was uh, an exercise in Greg's book that we embellished, and some of it was, okay, here's a chord progression, let's take turns soloing. But it was a two-hour performance, and uh, about an hour of that was those of us who had something to play already prepared. And then interspersed was all of these things that Greg, you know, he had this vision of what the show should be, and he just wrote the music, that was required to pull it off. And at the end of the night, I mean, the audience was blown away, as is everyone that sees Greg play. But everybody at the seminar is like, I can't believe I was a part of that show. It was truly <laughs> amazing. And I've reflected so many times on the, the sheer man hours that Greg puts in to making sure that this thing goes smooth and that the end is something memorable for everybody. And that you know, that's the... The mold that I've been trying to approach, but man, Greg and so many times he, you know, I, I think he was here 12 times at least doing seminars and, you know, like the seventh time he shows it with a whole new idea. Let's go out to the beach and do something very fretboard related with no instruments. So we're like out in the sand and he's like, "Okay, here's the (laughs) strings. Here's the frets. There might be some dancing. Yeah. I want everybody to go from the tonic up to the major tenth. And, you know, by by the end of 15 minutes, everybody gets it. And it it was a brilliant idea, I thought, to make you think in your head about the fretboard. Whereas most of us, as soon as you put the instrument on, you're staring at your fingers on the fretboard and you you're not really conceptualizing. You're like into the concrete world. And I remember thinking that is so brilliant to force people to view the fretboard truly in your mind and, you know, help imagine while you're playing. Well, now your mind knows where your fingers are supposed to go instead of you having to look at it. And that's just a little thing. But Greg was always like, okay, what can we do that's different or what's a new way or what might reach some people that the generic stuff doesn't quite reach And yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, it's not okay, I wrote a curriculum in 2003 and I've taught it 28 times since then. No, it, it it's always evolving and new things and yeah, that, I think that's why people come back. There's a number of people that come every year to my seminar and yeah, Gabriel is gorgeous, but I think it's because they get something new out of it every year. Oh well, yeah.
2: Yeah. People always get new stuff, and especially when he taught, and it's funny because Joyce said that she was always one of the first people that you know he would come. He would have these epiphanies on something new, and she was always the first person that he would run this stuff by. And she said she had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> she said she'd just nod and go, "That sounds really great." You know, and she'd be sitting there just going,
0: Well, it's kind of funny the, you know, we we just released we released an episode of recordings of folks kind of talking about you know some remembering some things about greg and and that came up a lot i think of that that if you were maybe this was your first seminar or you're fairly new to stick if greg was teaching there he always started with like a beginner exercise where he he, like you weren't there with your stick you would move around and take steps and i I think it related back to that fretboard thing and i and it's kind of just kind of funny how many people brought that up so it was you know i guess a little memorable to to kind of go through that (laughs) Uh,
2: that was the one thing that that I don't want to say didn't change because he was always, he was always um, sort of tweaking it, but that was the one thing that he wanted to sort of get to a point where it was pretty much the same. He wanted to have that first lesson for beginners and have it, you know, this is, this is what it is. And he did workshops where he tried to teach us how to teach that, you know, he did one in Charlottesville and he did one in Ann Arbor several years ago that he called like teacher workshops or something. And the idea was we had, bunch of people sign up, and we had about half of them that were beginners, and the other half were more experienced players. And he was teaching his beginner course to the beginners. And for the rest of us, he was teaching us how to teach it, because he wanted that one course to be kind of etched in concrete. Um, and yeah, I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't know if any of us that were at any of those workshops are really – are really qualified to even teach it, which really kind of breaks my heart because, you know, I would really like to see that um, continue on. Hmm. Well, since we're talking about Greg, I guess I have to mention uh, that
3: Glenn and I had talked quite a bit in the last, well, the six months leading up to the seminar of, um, you know, what we might do as, as any sort of tribute for Greg and, you know, pretty dear to my heart because Greg has been up here so many times and taught so many people here. Uh, We landed on a couple of things, and one I don't want to get into too much was uh, Glenn suggested we play one of Greg's earlier tunes, Requiem for Persephone, which I I now have a video of. And Glenn was kind enough to actually write a second stick part. So I think that went over really well, and it'd be fun to talk about that later. But what I'm really getting to is Terry Riley's MC, which uh, Uh, 20-odd years Uh, ago, Glenn and I were both fortunate – actually – My first public stick performance was Terry Riley's NC with 12 other stick players, including Glenn and Greg. And uh, it was just awesome. And for those that don't know, we can't get into uh, too much here. But it's an interesting set of motifs that are played in in a repetitive but sequential order. And the, the guidelines suggest that it would take typically between 30 and 60 minutes to pull it off 30 and 90, I think is what they say. And when we did this with Greg 20 odd years ago, it was about an hour. I think we came in just under an hour. So we thought that might be really nice to do again. And we pulled it off. I'm so happy that we did it. Uh, Our version this year was a bit shorter, but uh, we have to be in someone's book of world records because on stage playing Terry Riley's NC 16 Chapman sticks, I'm going to count Steve Adelson separately. He was on Chapman Stick, but he was basically our sound effects guy. He was plugged into his VG99 <laughs> yeah. using gadgetry on that unit that he'd never used before because he's usually got both hands on the stick. But here he was like playing notes and twiddling with all the weirdness. The VG99 is pre cable thing.
1: Yeah, there were birds flying by and (laughs) tornadoes (laughs) moving through and all sorts of things.
3: And then, you know, it's in C, so we had to do a little physical modification because Bob's didgeridoo is a C sharp. And we had a quick debate (laughs) okay, are we going to play in C sharp? But he was able to dismantle his didge and retune it to C. So our low, the low sub octave C was didgeridoo. And I'm thinking, okay, 16 sticks, a noise guy a didgeridoo and a recorder because Robert was playing the recorder. Yeah. I don't think that's ever happened again before. Yeah. And it was, it was amazing. It's such a weird piece of music. That's so fun to play, but we pulled it off. It took us, I'm going to say 27 minutes was our performance. And it was just really fun to kind of, you know, channel Greg's thinking of, well, I guess what I'm getting at is Greg's mentality of is we are together. And you know, Greg's, Solo improv CDs are amazing, but I know that Greg's favorites were Azul, which is improv with two other musicians that he loved, and the Greg Howard band Lift. Which some of the tunes came out of improv, but they're actually more like tunes. But still, that's a group collaboration. So in C, with, you know, 16, 18 other people, man, there's your group performance. And I'm so glad that we did it. And, you know, everybody had a little bit of homework before they showed up. And we spent about an hour or so each day kind of running through bits of it on the island and we did it. So uh, just to extend that a little bit, one of the first things I did was uh, call Joyce, Joyce is uh, Greg's wife, and you know, tell her a little bit about it. And she relayed a story to me that I did not know anything about, but in 2000, Greg was invited along with a bunch of other um, virtuosos playing various instruments. To perform yeah. in C at the Lincoln Center in New York. That's what prompted
2: him to do the the, yeah, the right? Right. Yeah, and I Joyce, that. you
3: know, as sort of alluding to what Glenn said earlier, Joyce knew nothing about Terry Riley or in or what the hell this was going to be. But you know, Greg was up there rehearsing and and invited her up. So on the way to New York, she's thinking, okay, Greg said, let's meet at, at the Lincoln Center, and she's thinking oh yeah, that, that's like, let's meet at Disneyland. You know? <laughs> that's never going to happen. And she said, as she's walking to the front of the Lincoln Center, there's Greg, and it took like five seconds to meet. And she said that performance was amazing. I, I don't think she really knew what to expect, and it was just riveting. So there's a, an extra Greg element to NC there, but really happy with how that came out. And yeah, you'll be able to see and hear that. It's It's a static shot from the back of the room, but... But I'll get that up somewhere and people can enjoy that. That was really fun.
2: Yeah, we played that. Didn't we play that at a, a public library in Kamloops or something the, like that? Yeah, the, no, it was the oh, art, it wasn't a library, art gallery. It was an art gallery. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And it sounded really great. Too. The audience up there
3: was riveted. I, I think there was 12 of them, but they were really into it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 13 of us. So I think that means we won.
1: <laughs> uh, you're outnumbering the audience. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated particularly about uh, this particular Gabriel event is that um, there were a number of little breakout sessions with, you know, where there'd be three or four people that would slip outside on the porch, you know, move an amp out there and some instruments and talk about stuff. And it was kind of cool. Um, one I really benefited from that I just wanted to throw out props to Scott uh, Scott sure, and uh, you know, he went outside and spent 45 minutes to us, uh, with us uh, talking about the Helix HX Stomp. And um, that was really good because, you know, I had some questions and and if anyone knows Scott, you know, he's a very detail-oriented guy and and he's got, he has all his ducks in a row with a lot of things. But anyhow, that was really, it was really nice because, you know, I got to learn a few things about the HX Stomp and when it was all said and done, um, I found out that my stomp is broken, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I didn't realize that till I got home and and tried to apply some of the things that that he, uh, explained. And then, you know, he, he sent us some of his, uh, some of his patches for the unit and they weren't working on my unit like they are on his. And so that kind of saved me a little more headache trying to figure out what's, what am I doing wrong here? Well, maybe I'm not doing anything wrong, but, uh, I did know a whole lot more about the unit, uh, after my time with Scott. So, hey Scott, thanks a lot man. It was time well spent. Well, it was time well spent and I really appreciate it. And uh so uh, that was there were some good things like that um that were at this event, a number of breakouts that Steve and Bob would sometimes walk outside but then
3: well, I have to say something about my good friend Glenn. So get ready to get embarrassed cuz I know you don't want to hear this, but uh, I do remember an interlocking once Glenn led a session that was gear related. Uh, I think you had your looper set up and you were talking about some technical details other than that i don't really know of glenn leading a session at a stick seminar but after this year uh as is typical i have to send notes out to not everybody but some people and say okay yeah what's your thoughts about instructors for next year and the uh, the most uh the person that got the most responses was bob as you might imagine because bob's amazing but especially when you've just spent the weekend with bob and it's fresh in your head it's like yeah and I the number two name on the list was Glenn. Like, uh, who do you want to see as a teacher next year? And I wrote Glenn. I said, yeah, man, you're, you came up as number two. And Glenn's like, that doesn't make any sense. And <laughs> it's exactly what Victor was just talking about. Uh, it's hard to quantify the value of sitting next to Glenn Porman at lunch or sitting around a group of people in the evening talking about stuff and Glenn's contributions. And that's the sort of thing that you don't get – at, at a typical setup, that it, it requires that informal time of us hanging out, and you know, Glenn's one of many examples, the one excellent one of somebody that just has a whole bunch of knowledge about a whole bunch of things—the instrument, how to play it, music in general—but doesn't necessarily want to get up in front of everybody and do an hour presentation about it. But that's not necessary to stick somewhere. Just have lunch with Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I'm just Or or really, I I think part of it, too, was five or six people start talking about, you know, the helix or whatever else. You never know who in that group is going to say something that is exactly what you needed to hear to move forward. And it's not always the teacher. In fact, in those situations, a lot of times it's the guy next to you. Like, oh, I got one of those. Here's how you do it. Or, you know, well, I've tried that. Here's where I landed. And that's to me, that's invaluable. That's, That's the difference between the retreats. And like a nine
1: to five kind of thing. Uh, I guess to me, I guess I would characterize it as so much of the time when I'm trying to figure something out, I'm online. I'm asking the mighty Google or the mighty duck or I'm going and combing the stickiest archives or whatever. And you never get quite the answer you want, it seems. But when you're standing next to someone or sitting next to them and you're looking them in the eye or you're, you've got the thing in front of you, you know, it's a lot easier to find that answer and to get a better answer than, you know, than reading something or, or, you know, or seeing a video on YouTube. So, I mean, I'm not trying to diss those things. We're all going to do them. We all do them. And they're all very, very helpful.
2: Well, I have frequently, I have frequently said that I'm, sometimes I'm envious of the generation of young, like guitar players and stuff that can fire up YouTube videos and, and see videos on how to play something. And I, I do think that that's a double-edged sword though. I, I think that, I think that when we were very young, there was, there was a skill involved in trying to learn pieces just by playing records or the tapes over and over again and backing them up and trying to replay what you hear. There's, there's a skill involved in doing that that I think you still need to have. I think you still have to develop your ears to be able to do that, even with having YouTube videos. The other thing that makes it a double-edged sword is occasionally I found when I would get on YouTube and try and get a refresher of a song I used to play on guitar or something like that. And I'm always amazed at how many videos on how to are actually wrong. <laughs> you know, I'll get into them and I'll be listening to them and I'll go, that's not how you play that. <laughs> it's like, I, I remember enough to know that this is just dead wrong. And there's a lot of those. So you gotta wade through the crap to get the good stuff. But there's a lot of really good stuff though.
0: It's funny you say that because I, I, I recently, I, I, I really love Gene's um, Mercy Street version that he plays oh, on yeah. stick, yeah. it's absolutely gorgeous and he's got these effects on it. And I, earlier I, I was hoping to like learn it and I, I still will, I, I just haven't yet. Cause it, it's kind of funny cause I, I talked to Gene a bunch and he's go, oh, I do this and this and and I'm starting to watch the video and I'm like, oh, I'll just, I'll be able to tell from the video exactly what to do. And then I, but he plays in like a different tuning Oh, and it's just enough to not be oh, even yeah. remotely easy to grab and just update. Like, it's not like shift a little bit. It's like it's actually enough that I need to play it completely differently.
3: Or retune your instrument. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I play I play I play a 12, I,
0: I play a 12 string in classic and he plays a, a 10 in bar, deep baritone.
3: I think that's right. Yeah.
0: So it's like it's just different enough that, like, it's not as easy as like I'll just play along with the video I need to actually spend time on it. Uh, you know. Um which is I, I'm I'm mostly joking but it's like I think there's that extra step with Stickist is like You don't always know what the, like you can kind of look and get the musical vibe, but oftentimes you're not going to be able to just look at it and see what they're doing. And if you're in a different tuning, sometimes you really have to think about the implications of that because it's not always just a couple frets up or down or a string over. Like sometimes, yes, but not always. So like the YouTube thing is like, it's great, but the sticks have like so many options of tunings that it's not always straightforward.
2: that's what makes that was that's what makes the idea of tabs hard as well is is all the different tunings and you you know at one point you know i know somebody like greg tried to do different tabs with different tunings to try and cover everybody for me you know i i'm 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 launching on a campaign right now to basically try and tab up every single thing that i play and at some point just make it all available you know I, i was i was gonna wait until i had videos to go along with all of them but that could take the rest of my life. Mm. Because videos are a pain in the ass. So at some point, I think I might just put everything up there. But that's one of the things that makes that hard is all the different tunings. And at some point, especially when it comes to tabbing your own tunes, I think you just have to decide, you know, this is how I play it, this is how I'm gonna tab it, and I'm gonna put it up there. If somebody wants to try and tweak it for their own tuning, that's fine. If they wanna say, screw you, you're not covering my tuning, I hate you, that's fine too, <laughs> but you know you can only do so much. You yeah, so, yeah,
1: you know, you know the like stick that. has it, it. You know, speaking of double-edged swords, you know it's it's got this flexibility, and so you can have whatever tuning you want, uh, pretty much. And it's 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 built to make those changes fairly easy, especially from a standpoint of you know the mechanics of the instrument. But it's also all those extra tunings and all that freedom to use whatever tuning you want. That does. It does limit the repertoire that's out there and documented for your particular tuning of choice. Yeah. And so, you know, if you've got yeah. a if you've got an, a tuning that maybe isn't a very common one, it's going to be harder to find pre-tabbed stuff. And uh, and by the way, shout out to shout out to Glenn. You know, when he talks about putting documents of, of his songs on the web. Um, he's already done a number of them. And uh, actually when I was taking lessons with Jim, Jim had me learn a couple of, of your songs and you know, oh, my cool. tuning didn't match yours. I think uh, he had me learn the manifest and then uh, uh, a thousand words. And um, you know, if you go to one to one normal.com and you see uh, some of Glenn's output, he's got videos for some of them. And the reason Glenn wants to take time to do when he does his videos is because they come out damn fine. And um, I appreciate what you've already done and if you want to learn to use a looper go look up glenn's documentation for uh, a thousand words
2: Tab that has looping instructions. Yeah, full
1: instructions. Yeah. And actually,
2: right now it's the only one, but I want to do more yeah.
1: of those. I mean, I don't play it with a looper. The song doesn't need a looper necessarily, and so I don't. No. I don't. But you know, you gave us what settings to put on the looper, what to do here, what to do there, when to start, when to stop. You know. And anyway, you you didn't tell me which foot to use to click the the button. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> yeah, so that's a big failing on your part.
2: <laughs> I I could go back and put that in, but. Actually, I don't know if
3: Victor knows this, but I, I really love that tune too. And I'm not really a looper guy, so I, I taught it to Victor so he could be the looper.
2: <laughs> and then we did play it together on Gabriel. We did. You know, it, was it turned out pretty, pretty well. Nice. Well, it's 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 kind of hard with some tunes too because because loopers are almost like stick tunings. You know, it's like not all of them necessarily have the same stuff. So I have this Echo Plex that I've used for a bajillion years, and there's things that it'll do that you know. I don't know if other units will necessarily do that. So something like a thousand words, the looping in that's pretty simple and it's pretty just run of the mill, like the sort of things that any looper you could possibly get will do. I have other tunes where I use some functions in this that maybe other loopers don't have. So it's like kind of goes back to the tunings. Do I just notate it? Just this is what I do. And if you can't do it, then you're out of luck. I, I mean, I think that might be really the kind of the only option for something like that but,
3: um. but I, I would echo what victor's saying that uh, a thousand words with the looping instructions on it is awesome for people who want to kind of dip their toe into the looping thing Because oh, sure. it's, it's just it's just one loop so yes. that's i mean it's always weird to do the timing with your foot just right so that is getting used to it but it really is just one loop so it's like a a way to ease into and
2: it doesn't even really come
3: in until pretty late in the tune, right right so So it's like a perfect online resource for a stick player it's like well i'm thinking about a looper but what's an easy way to use a looper well i mean there you got a beautiful tune and the looper part of it is
2: you know beginner level i guess you would say Yes. The Salt Spring tune is another one that I've been wanting to do. And that one, ah, I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know. I'm going to figure it out because I'm going to figure it out because, you know, a lot of times these things, I mean, I started to do this more, not more, but as much for my own resource as for anybody else's. I think there was a few years ago where I had been writing a bunch of fingerstyle guitar tunes. And there was a tune that I started like before Thanksgiving and... The holidays came, and Thanksgiving came, and Christmas came, and we were doing all this stuff. And all of a sudden, it was like January, February, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, that's right." There was this tune I was working on, and I grabbed my guitar, and I couldn't remember how to play it. Oh, and that really, and that really kind of freaked me out a little bit. And at that point, I I started to launch on a mission on guitar and stick to just try and do notations of everything, so that if that ever happens, you know, I can just go grab the go grab the tabs for it and remind myself how I played
0: it. I've started doing that for the pieces that I learn. I just start a new finale document. And as I'm learning it, I I document like, it's a good idea. It's good. It's good
2: practice too. It it keeps your skills sharp as far as notating things. And I've also, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to about this. It was only about a week ago. I think it was when Tom was in town. Um, I've changed the way I played things, too, because of the notation. There's been times where I was notating things and there were some notes in there that were kind of redundant. And I tweaked them in the notation and said, hmm, okay." I got rid of the redundant notes and I kind of introduced another note. And this actually sounds a little bit better. I wonder if I can actually play it this way. (laughs) And I went back and I changed the way that I played things because of discoveries that I made when I was in the middle of doing the notation.
1: You know That actually, it's funny to hear you say that story because I'm a mechanical engineer and half the time, you know, you're supposed to do everything at the same time, you know, uh, between the design and things you have to document. But a lot of times we don't. You design the part in 3D modeling, all powerful CAD. Then you go to document it. You go to make the drawing. You go to put in the data structure. Can I ask
2: real quick what you use to do that?
1: Uh, I've. I've used SolidWorks. Uh, Right now I'm using Siemens NX uh, is what my client uh, has me using. But then you go to... No Inventor? uh, No, no. uh, Very few people in my company know how to use Inventor. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, I can't be a resource for you on that one. No, you wouldn't be a
2: resource for me. I'm a developer that that writes Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so we haven't had any clients that use it. But then when you go and make the documentation for the part, you know, you're putting dimensions on it and stuff, all of a sudden you usually you notice something. Wow, that was a really, I could have done that a lot better. And so you go back and change it. The, the documentation informs the actual design. And it sounds sure. like it, you're just saying the documentation kind of informs the music yeah, sometimes. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's yeah. a long winded way of, of making that connection. But uh, it was cool to hear you say that because I get that yeah. in my day to day. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. And like I said before, too, it just it just kind of keeps your skills sharp. I mean, the ability to notate and the ability to read are things that I don't want to lose because I just think that they're invaluable. And, you know, people get in philosophical debates about these things once in a while. And, and I'm certainly not religious to the point where I pound my fist and say, these are skills that you have to have. But I also occasionally run across people that somehow try and spin it so that, you know, somehow not having these skills makes them superior. And that absolutely drives me crazy because I think it's the biggest load of bullshit that I've ever heard in my entire life (laughs) And it's just not so. So yeah. yeah, and kind of going back to the videos too. You know, you were talking about uh, about the quality of the videos, and it's not so much that you know I'm I, I'm insisting that these videos have to be like great quality just for the sheer sake of being great quality. But I just if if you're gonna put out, I think if you're gonna put out a tab and you're gonna put out a video with it that says here's the video of the tab, it has to be right. You know, if you make mistakes and do things in the video that aren't in the tab, if you're just making the video for entertainment purposes, if it sounds good, you roll with it. But if if it's representing the tab, I think if you make a mistake, you got to stop what you're doing and go start over. It has to be right. Yeah,
1: I think that's what I was talking about. I mean, I don't – I'm playing that particular song. You know, you played it on an SG-12 I've got a twelve-string grand. Alto, oh, it was an alto even. Okay, so you've got a ten-string yep. that uh, short scale instrument there, and I'm playing it on a twelve-string yeah. long scale instrument. And so, you know, not everything was the same. You know, some of my fingers have, fingerings had to be different, and 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 whatnot. Yeah. By the way, something, yeah, playing it in the playing in the same octave that you played it on your alto really didn't work. So, you know, I think I played it for you while you were, while you were a Gabriola and I was, I was an octave down. You can though. I
2: mean, there was, there was, there was actually rephrase that. I was considering. My skills
1: (laughs) do not permit me to play that high on a 12 string. I can't play up on the tiny frets where you mash your fingers together. You know, Uh, I can't, I can't do that.
2: (laughs) It is hard. There was, there was one point in my life where I was considering selling the alto and I figured I can see if I can play all the alto tunes that I have on my grand. And technically, yes, I could, that tune being one of them, but they just didn't sound right. You know, Mm -hmm.
0: it really has it. I I have an SG-12. It just has a completely different voice to it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Jim, I don't want you to feel left out. I've got a couple of questions I wanted to, uh, to ask you about because, um, you know, when I think of Jim Meyer, and by the way, I, you know, I say that, you know. Uh, uh,
3: but you really don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
3: We're reading off the cue card now, right?
1: <laughs> so, Jim, moving back to you, there's something I wanted to talk to you about that I haven't really had an opportunity to talk to you with, uh, talk to you about. Uh, even at Gabriola uh, a whole lot but when people think of Jim Meyer, typically we're thinking of your career as a busker and we've heard about that in, in some of the past podcasts that we have had you on for and you've got great stories and you've talked about what it can do to your playing and things. Uh, but lately on Facebook I've been seeing a lot of of gig announcements. Well. I've been seeing a lot more gig announcements, and so it seems like you've got some other things going on musically that go beyond uh, your daily busking. So, what's going on?
3: Well, there's a few things. Uh, one is. Um it's, uh, I was in Charlottesville for Greg's Memorial, and of course, as anyone in Charlottesville for a Greg anything, you have to do your pilgrimage to Miller's, right? <laughs> and it just reminded me, you know, Greg was the Monday night guy at Miller's in Charlottesville, and that was his thing. And I, I don't have a weekly gig, but the, <clears throat> the place I've been playing, the Water Street Cafe, the upstairs club is called Second Floor Gastown, and it's right across the street from the steam clock in Gastown for all you tourists out there. Um, At the beginning of COVID, everything I did shut down like everybody else, but this restaurant had just opened the Jazz Club, I think it was three or four months before COVID, and they really wanted, they had made a commitment to daily music and they really wanted to pursue it. So, you know, kind of through the network here, I had heard about that and I started playing there in June, either late May or beginning of June in 2020. and and, you know it's the this is the whole stick thing this is just another stick story the guy that owns the place is first of all a a pretty big music fan it was his idea to have nightly music there anyhow but he saw me playing you know he was just like what is that and he became a a stick fan pretty quickly so when the it came time to do a a post-covid seminar gabriola just wasn't really feasible so we did something here in town And I asked him, hey, can we just do our performances here? And he totally embraced that. So the relationship there has just been positive all along. And a little over a year ago, I said, hey, maybe I could just do like a one night a month, uh, you know, a regular gig here, which started as the first Wednesday. I think that's about to evolve a little bit. But, you know, I've been the first Wednesday of the month. And I originally had the idea of uh, stick and friends, that I would play the stick and I'd bring friends of mine. Mainly as a busker, I met an enormous amount of musicians, many of whom are really very good musicians. And you know, we kind of became friends busking in the same place. So I thought, this is brilliant. Around the same time, I started working with a vocalist whose stage name is Luna Wilde. And it was a giant shift for me from Really, I do a couple of covers, instrumental covers, but mainly I play my own stuff. And with her, it's all classic rock cover tunes that she's singing and I'm playing behind. So uh, also a stick community story, I kind of reached out to a number of folks, Greg Howard being number one, but many other people like, OK, I'm now playing behind a vocalist. How do I become a rhythm guitar player? And Greg was, man, on a weekly basis, Greg was giving me, I'd say, okay, here's a tune we're trying to learn. Oh, well, you should try this and, you know, do a call and response with the vocal. And in, the, in this part, you know, it was just so invaluable. And so I presented the same thing to any stick player I ran into. And, you know, Bob Culvertson, Steve Adelson, all the guys that do the Saturday morning Zoom, they all had input. And now I, that's kind of a regular gig, uh, Luna Wilde and me playing, um, she sings and I play chords and a bass line behind her for the oh, most nice. part. So the, and you know, Steve Adelson, the first thing he said, you got a singer, you're going to get more gigs. You got a girl singer, you're going to get way more gigs. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it's pretty much true. Um, yeah, so that's been a big thing. And now the stick with friends, uh, sorry, stick and friends. It was actually the singer, Luna that uh, I think it was the first or second, was well, second one that we did, she said, stick with friends. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's way better. So now it's stick with friends is the, the show. And it's been a blast. I, I always play first because I'm the host, but I've had singer-songwriters come, guys that just do cover tunes, acoustic guitar players, uh, Alan, that you know from the Stick Seminar, uh, Alan plays uh, Stick and sings in a band, Radnecks, and uh, which is a three-piece. But if you drop the drummer, Alan and Jeff have played with me I think three times now. So it's just it's really fun to to spread the Stick out into other players. And what I this is not my strength, but what i have actually started to do now is sit in with my friends. So it's easy easy enough, the uh, singer-songwriters, and I'm thinking of two of them who play acoustic guitar and sing, I play bass behind them on the stick. So it kind of fills out a little bit what they're doing. It's so fun for me to actually perform the stick with my friends who are not stick players. So yeah, stick with friends. If you're ever in uh, Vancouver on the first Wednesday of the month, come on down. So
1: what you said about 30 seconds ago, so you're only playing the bass side uh, behind some of these people?
3: Uh, you know, it, it depends. There's, uh, it, you know, some of the uh, one fellow that comes, he's more of a, you know, I want to say classic rock, but really his strengths are James Taylor, Jim Croce, you know, kind of the mellower sort of acoustic stuff. You know, he's, I feel so good after all these years of playing the stick. I'm up there playing like a one four five bass line, pretty straightforward. <laughs> and I was originally a bass player, so like that's home base for me. And just before the break he leans over to me and says, Go. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, oh okay. So yes, yeah, so on occasion I will do a you know, a right hand guitar solo during a break or something. Wow. And right. that is amazing to have a an environment like that where I ease into it. It's not like I do that all night. I did that on one tune unexpectedly with him. And then the next time we played, I think I did that on three tunes with him. That's and, really cool though. And yeah. it's it, For me, it's a huge step and it's, it's all because of you guys. It's because of my stick community, you know, again, Greg at the top of that, but really everybody that I talk to, Oh, I've done that. You know, here's how I did it. Or have you tried this? Or may, uh, some of them have actually seen me with the singer. And they'll now have critique about, oh, well, maybe you could do this instead or whatever. And man, the, the community aspect of the stick, I just can't imagine there's any other instrument that could have any of these stories about, oh, I was in a jam. And I called up a professional stick player that doesn't live anywhere <laughs> near me. Just said, Help. And a half an hour later, I've got a solution. I just don't imagine that that happens in other music communities the way it does for us.
1: Mic drop moment right there.
3: (laughs) 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 All right. What have you gotten yourself into this
1: time? (laughs) Oh, wow. You know, I'm hearkening back to uh, one of the lessons that I have with you, Jim, that, um, you know, I had, When I'm playing the instrument in a band context, which I really love, um, you know, usually I'm playing the bass uh, and because a lot of times there's an electric guitar player and I'm not needed to do anything. And I was talking to Jim, you know, uh, during a lesson. Well, you know, okay, great. You know, sometimes there's no electric guitar player and. I don't have a whole lot of time to learn the music. You know, sometimes I get the lead sheet and I'm supposed to be playing it at a rehearsal an hour later. And I'm just not good enough to pick that up quickly and to be able to look at it and think it through. And you basically said, you know what you need to do. You need to just basically have a few options on just three of those melody strings where you know where home base is. You know, you got your C, you got your G, you got your D, you got your A minor, you got these, you know, where just just get comfortable going on just the three strings. Don't try and do anything complicated and and get that done. And you know what? That was some great advice uh, because, yeah, it's just, it, it, it has actually enabled me because, you know, normally when I look at a lead sheet, great, there's a C, there's a G, there's this chord, there's that chord, there's this chord. I don't want it all to sound the same. I want it to sound a little bit different. I want to do things on different strings. And you're pretty much, yeah, later. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so you had me on the edge of my seat and I was really worried how that story was going to end. <laughs> yeah, and then I went and tried oh, to do yeah, it and right. I fell flat on my face. And, <laughs> and as you're following, you yell out my name. <laughs> and, uh, yeah,
2: I just, I'm <laughs> the ground and went,
1: yeah. yeah, so anyway, what you were just saying about, you know, uh, you're playing bass and you're not used to doing this. I said, go. I would imagine that you've probably got, you know, a home base that you can do some of that stuff with uh, while you're, you know, yeah. uh, and... Uh, you know, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm talking down, but it you know it sounds like what you just described is the advice you gave me, just a little bit tweaked to uh, uh, at a higher level than what what you gave me. So,
3: yeah, and that's I think that is valuable. Not that it came from me, but valuable for a lot of people because you know for me when I grew up, my stick growing up had a lot to do with watching Greg Howard play live. And, you know, and then you go by stick figures and you think, oh, this is what stick players do. They play these amazing tunes perfectly every time. And, uh, you know, that that almost ruined me trying to do that because I'll just never play. I'll never play like Greg as much as I want to. I'm not Greg, so I'm never going to play like Greg. And it took me a long time to realize, you know, Contributing to the music that's going on around you is the big thing. Yeah. And you can't go from zero to 60, you know? So right. yeah, I think that stick with three strings or, you know, learn 145 or 1625 or whatever so that you can do it with confidence. You know, that's like a baby step and there's nothing wrong with baby steps. Exactly. Okay, now you can do that. You still can't be Greg Howard. You know, you can't sit in with Les Paul and have him go take 16, you know, but you've got (laughs) a little bit of experience doing that. And from that, you can expand it. And that's me that, you know, Greg has had so many things over the years that helped me take a step in that direction. And it's like, okay, I, I know I'm at the beginning of this, but I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing the simple version of it. But I'm actually doing it and then let it, you know, kind of grow as you work on it. And it, I, I guess really what I'm saying is it's really important to see that, OK, here's the goal. You want to be a great, you know, solo stick player or whatever it is you're up to. Yeah, that does not happen in a day. I, I, you know, I've been doing enough stick seminars where I have seen the occasional young person that you just want to slap them smartly. <laughs> had a yeah, for like three weeks and they're playing Bach on it. But, you know, people other than Rodrigo, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's what you have to do. It's like, okay, I can't do Greg Howard, but, hey, you know, maybe I can do a minor pentatonic scale over a blues progression with somebody. And then once you do that, it's like, oh, you know, that didn't really go so bad. I think I can do that. Oh, maybe I could, like, add the flat five next time, you know, or, or go beyond the octave and it's just little baby steps. And it took me the longest time to realize that you, you just don't dive in and like, poof, I can play. And you also don't stay at home until you think you're so good that no one will be offended by your performance. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the deal is I decided early on, and I don't mind if people say horrible stuff about my playing. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And the only way to do it is to go out there and do it. So, yeah, Yeah, the second time I played publicly was in Ann Arbor at one of Glenn's performances. And that was the first time I played solo. And I'm never going to tell you that that went great, but it it went okay. Leopold Brothers. And man, walking off of the stage going, I did it. You know, yeah, yeah, it wasn't great, but that wasn't the point. I did it. I know I can do that. And the hope is next time I do, it'll be better. And I think that's the mentality that got me to where I am is, yeah, next week is better. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that practice, you don't notice today that you're better than you were yesterday. You don't notice today you were better than you were last week. You may notice that you're better than you were three months ago. And that's the way to think of it is like. I, I am getting better. I'm putting my time in. and if you It's like the- saying I'm
2: taller today than I was yesterday. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know? Although I'm going to start noticing that I'm yeah, shorter Yeah, some of
1: us have I'm noticed the opposite in recent years. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I, I get that. And kind of going back to the, you know, not going to play like Greg, too. It was a long time before I finally got to a point where I stopped trying to be the guy that, like, you know, learns a melody, plays a melody, does the head and then solos because that's what jazz players do, you know, and and I was never particularly good at that even before I was a stick player. And I think when I started to when I started to get back into playing a lot of fingerstyle guitar and I started to listen to a lot of those players, I, I started to I don't want to say notice, but I just started to pay attention to the fact that a lot of their works are tunes that are, you know, composed they're composed and they play them and they're not improvising and they're not soloing. And I'm feel like I'm better at that anyways. And as far as my own compositions, I started to take a lot more direction from people like that, as opposed to like the Steve's or the Bob's or the Greg's that, you know, play the melody and then solo for 10 minutes, you know, they do it. Great. I don't. So I I know why you would Emmett out of that list. Because he doesn't play the melody. He just solos. He just, he just solos, yeah. But I, I remember <laughs> at one point, you know, I, I put up, a, I think it was a video I was playing um, Black Orpheus, and I put up a video of it, and it was a video. I finally got to the tune to the point where I thought it sounded pretty good, and I put a video up, and Emmett made a comment that said, you know, it looks like we have another jazz player in our midst, and I just, I just, like, cringed when I read that, and I wanted to get in and say, please don't say that, because I'd never... Consider myself a jazz player. And the other thing that, that immediately he wouldn't necessarily know this, but I would know this is that I spent some time working on a solo section for that, that I liked. And I play it exactly the same way every time. So to me, that disqualifies me from saying I'm a jazz player almost immediately because it's not an improvised piece. Sounds like it, but it's not. <laughs>
1: I'm still trying to process what you just said.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the, there, there's a section in the middle of that piece that sounds like a solo. That sounds like I improvised a solo, but I didn't. I mean, I, I painstakingly worked it out before I ever recorded it. And now if I play it, I play it note for note the same way mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it's a composed, it's, you know, it sounds like a, it sounds like an improvised piece, but it's a composed uh, yeah. piece. Um, and so it, it, it just it became a little liberating. I, f- I felt like my own playing and my own compositions got better when I stopped trying to be a guy that, you know, plays the head and then solos. Mm.
3: I guess I would jump in because I can't go through a whole session without mentioning Rush. But um, <laughs> you know, Neil, Neil here in uh, uh, his documentary DVD, he talks about um, the anatomy of a drum solo. And he kind of says something very similar. He says, I'm not an improviser. Like he's not going to sit in a drum kit in front of 10,000 people and improvise a drum solo. But he said, part of my practice is improvising.
2: Well,
0: sure. And when I improvise of
3: course. I practice and I find something I like, then I keep it. So yeah. all of his drum solos are you know, composed. And I do believe from night to night, they were basically the same. Because the improvisation part of it was done. You know, he did the improvising. He picked out the pieces that he liked and then made a drum solo out of that. And then that thing is now like a set piece. Hmm. But improvisation is really in the the beginning of it. That's how it became a thing. I think that's true of a lot of people, though. I do a number of tunes like that, too, where there's a, a right hand instrumental break and I play the right hand, you know, virtually exactly the same every time. Because I figured it out when I was writing it and I came up with you know the little bits and pieces that I, I liked how they come together and then okay, now learn how to play that and then it's set in stone. So I do think when that you're an improviser, it's just that you don't improvise on the spot on stage.
2: No, and, and you're right. certainly you're right. Um, but I, th- I think that the, I think that the serious jazz players will tell you that they improvise on the well, spot yeah. when they're yes. on the stage. On a daily basis, you know, and so that's what I really what I was getting at, you know, when Emmett made the comment, said, oh, we got another jazz stick player in our midst. And I was like, no, you don't.
0: No, you don't. don't." (laughs) Here's the thing, though, like no one's going to watch your video and go, he's probably not improvising on the spot. (laughs)
2: No, I don't know. That's not that's not really the, the concern that I have. If I had that concern, I wouldn't have put the video up. Right. You know, it's just that. I I do think you have to make the distinction, you know, between an improvising performer because Greg was an improvising performer. Greg liked to do pieces that, you know, where he basically just played. He just made it up on the spot, you know. So
3: you're saying that Autumn Leaves wasn't originally a 20-minute piece? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All
1: right. Well, you know, I think... I heard earlier that Jim has a gig he's got to get out the door to. So. 40.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I got called in at the last minute, so I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Oh, point oh to you goal. professional
1: stick players getting called on the spot to go fill in for someone. Anyway, Hey guys, this has been an awesome conversation of, uh, the entire thing, both talking about seminars and then talking about composition and playing and band formation and stuff and, uh, talk about an improvised conversation. Um, <laughs> 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 this was really awesome. I just, you know, wanted to say thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot for all the work you do behind the scenes at the seminars. I know that it's kind of a thankless job, and I, uh, I know so many of us appreciate what you do. So, uh,
3: well, and thanks to you guys because Tap in Time is just another great resource for stick players. So, thanks for
1: sure.
2: churning these out. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me back. Too. Oh yeah, it's always always fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks for coming back. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, for everyone out there listening to this, uh, thanks for your time, too. We appreciate everyone that listens to this podcast, and we hope that sometime in the next 24 hours, you get a chance to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. Nobody can see you wave, Jim.
3: That's right. That was just for you. That was
1: just for you, guys. They can sense
4: it. (laughs) We welcome your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com.